0: Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com, so please subscribe. We speak today to Fred Bell, who's the CEO of Elemental Royalties. They're the latest Royalty company to join the TSXV, or at least they will be in two weeks' time. They've been private for the last three years, cutting their teeth on some smaller royalties. Usual uh, format here, start small, grow big. Enjoy the podcast. Fred, how are you doing, sir?
1: Very good. Thank you for having me on the show.
0: It's a pleasure. You're a new company to us and you're also a relatively new company, full stop. Why don't we kick off, give us that one-minute overview of the business for people new to this story, which should be practically everyone, I would have, I would have thought, uh, and then we'll pick it up from there.
1: I think the way we describe it is we're new to the market, but we're not new to the Royalty business. So we've been doing it three years privately. And we've acquired six royalties with four um, over currently operating and and paying assets. Um, And out of the six, with one more to to start paying from 2022. And I think that's been a a key focus for us is build a foundation of diversified revenue from the outset so that we can build the company from there. And it gives us a really solid foundation. And the royalty space, um, I think what's really interesting about it is that there is actually a lot of opportunity on the s- smaller side of the market where we are? Call it a two to twenty million dollar space. And so we've been able to get, I think, some really good quality assets, and you know, by putting them into a vehicle together, you know, you get that royalty company valuation, you get that sort of risk profile of a royalty company, and. Um, uh, that's that's a sort of very high level summary and we're just coming to the market now, as you
0: mentioned. Given that you're based in the UK, why didn't you do it in the UK?
1: It's um, it's a good question. And I, I thought to some extent it in the past it, it might be the UK, um, but really last year when we started talking to brokers and investors, I think that the understanding of the Royalty market is so much more advanced in Canada than it is in either the UK or Australia. And so when we were in London, to some extent, we were educating people on the Royalty model, whereas in Canada, instinctively, investors got it. There's enough companies there, people have been invested in it, and not just been invested in it, it's really outperformed as a sector, almost across the board. And so what you've got is a very educated investor base, but an investor base who are also keen to invest in new, um, you know, royalty companies coming to market with good, credible assets, management teams, etc.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, let's let's kick off. And because not many people know the company because you've been private. Not many people know you guys, and I think you know not therefore many people know what your business plan is. So let's start with the business plan. What did you set out to do three years ago? Why are you going public now?
1: I, I think the the real reason um, we put this together is is it it does offer a very attractive uh, entry point for investors into the mining sector as as a whole. Um, If you can get life of mine royalties over a number of different assets with different operators in different countries, you diversify your portfolio so much. And we all know from mining, there's there's enough risk out there already. And so if you can get some of the best parts, exploration upside, optionality, um, production increases, uh, direct, Exposure to commodity prices, without a lot of the capex, operating costs, in-country management that goes with it, you, you know, it is a very good model. And um, I think that when we set out, we, we started this privately because, as you as you said, you know, look, I'm I'm 33, so I'm still relatively young, and um, you know, to, it gave us the ability to build a track record privately um, before we came to market. And so we had. Um, you know, not more than fifty investors when we when we did the um, RTO fundraise just recently. So we had a pretty tight shareholding base. The top twenty shareholders own ninety percent of the company. Um, we had two institutional shareholders, the so rest are all private. Management still had a major stake. But what it enabled us to do is not come to market with a good idea, but come to market and be able to go to investors and say, "This is what we have done over the last three years. These are the royalties we have acquired. This is our track record." And it just enables us to then hit the ground running. And I think that my experience of in the past, being with a junior exploration company, um, you know, it, it was always, it stuck with me, it was that the costs, the listing costs, bureaucracy, admin, management time, were often disproportionate to, you know, for, for that size of a company. And so for us to be able to get past those stages privately and then come to the market now where we can really have a team in place to hit the ground running, That was one of the key principles for why we did it this way.
0: Okay. So you've explained why you've done it that way. You haven't told me what you set out to try to build and you've you've also explained why it's attractive to investors, but let's focus. I want to focus on you. Okay. So, you know, why, first of all, maybe let's talk about you. Okay. So you're 33. What do you know?
1: So I I had a history degree, um, which, you know, I never expected to go into mining with, um, and actually, I, I find it's always it's um, it's actually always more useful than I sometimes give it credit for. Um, but I I almost came into mining by accident. I'm based in London here, and um, I ended up uh, I've done some work experience internships all the way throughout university. Ended up with junior exploration companies, and so I got to know the sector. Still never believing that I would end up in the mining industry. And I graduated in two thousand nine now, and I ended up working um, for a company I knew and. Um, through that, I ended up as um, with an Australian explorer with uranium assets in Malawi called Resource Star, and it would have been a satellite. Their main asset would have been a satellite deposit for Paladin's Kylo Kira. only mine that. And actually, um, one of the people I was working with there is, is was a director of Elemental and is still in charge of our technical side, Richard Evans. And he's you know 20 years at Western Mining. I worked with him in Melbourne, um, and that was going on now 11 years. And so um, I, I spent some time in Melbourne, essentially running it day to day with Richard, that company. Um, and then I came back to the U.K. and in my spare time, um, maybe for my sins, I'd taken on a, a sort of shell company here. And it had no assets, no money in retrospect. Um, it, was, you know, it was very much jumping at the deep end. But we, we got some um, gold projects x rangold in Northeast Ghana, actually adjacent to where Cardinal sort of are now. Um, and uh, put together um, some directors, raised some money for it, and took it to AIM. This is sort of 2012 to uh, 2014, 2015. And it was a very bad time at the market then. And Cardinal as an example, when we actually went to do the roadshow, I think they had a 1.6 million market cap with a million in cash and all the projects they do now. And that was just before they made the Nandini discovery, but they were in our broken notes comparator. Uh, Azuma, who had spent you know 100 million dollars, had a 120 million market cap prior to that. Also in Northern Ghana, as another comparison, they had maybe a 12 million dollar market cap. And this really, I think, um, it really influenced me because I thought I've sunk two years of my life into this. They're genuinely, you know, really appealing prospects. I could talk about Northeast Ghana for a long time, but you know, it's underexplored, um, and you can pick up. District scale land packages there, which you couldn't do anywhere else in Ghana, top 10 gold producer. And so, being able to put all of this together, and then as you're taking it to market, the water's receding and valuations falling and falling, that by the time we did take it to AIM and raise the money, um, and we had a a sort of mid tier who were going to come in as a cornerstone shareholder as part of that, um, with all of that happening, I sort of, when we got to the point of listing, I looked at it and thought, I've done two or three years of this. For all the hard work, the only employee in the company, for almost no reward. And the risk reward profile is so skewed at that stage, especially for someone of my age profile. And so that company, it it kept going and it is now listed, um, albeit predominantly with other assets. But um, that experience made me think that I should either go and work for a sort of mid-tier company and above and bide my time, or if we're going to set something up again, do it in a business model that actually. Takes away a lot of that risk in the mining space. And the business model that made the most sense there was the royalty model. And, and that's how I got in touch um, at the beginning when I was putting it together with Richard, who I'd worked with at Resource Star, and then um, also Peter, who was one of our other directors privately and still will be. Um, and so it was, uh, it was Richard, myself, and, and Peter at the beginning. And we really set out to put a, a royalty company together that had key. Key point had good quality producing assets from day one. That was the most important thing um, because it gave us a space privately to be masters of our own destiny to some extent. We could raise money when we wanted to raise money, unlike as an exploration company, having to go back to investors when they know that you need the money and they can dictate the
0: terms. So, you, what I'm hearing is you, you had some time in West Africa, learned the hard way, mining's not easy. Uh, came back and had to sort of rethink about what would be a better environment to work in. Royalties, okay. So you, like investors, and me have a you know, lower uh, risk threshold, lower tolerance. Uh, so a high tolerance for uh, risk uh, in some cases, but royalty is royalties is is not something that you've got experience in. So where's the experience come in the team?
1: I, I think that um, break that down into different segments. So I suppose if you want to call um, the grey haired technical experience, which Pete probably won't thank me for that. But um, but Richard and Peter both um, uh, Western mining um, for quite a while and then um, Pete Richard I worked with um, at Resource Star and, and um, Peter was sort of an in, independence group and they set up a number of West African companies. And so I think um, what it meant is that uh, I always had a pretty keen interest because I came from a sort of investing background which is partly why I liked watching Crux interviews so far, because it's sort of how I would have gone on those. And I think um, Rich and Rich and Pete really brought the technical side, and some of our early shareholders were also people in the mining industry who we used and their networks when we were looking at opportunities. And so, when you're looking at a royalty, always say it's it's a finding the opportunities and being able to you know, work out at a high level that are these attractive. And then what is the corporate position for the owner? Because it's not something we haven't touched on, but all these were second, secondary royalties, so owned by third parties. So hundreds out there. The key is finding a Royalty that A is attractive and B you can transact on on good terms. And then going through the technical side, all the risks, the legal, the tax, the structuring, particularly important for a producing Royalty, and coming out at the end with hopefully an attractive deal.
0: But answer the question, which, so who on your team has written, designed, structured Royalties before?
1: So, so because we've been buying secondary Royalties, um, it's a bit like uh, uh, we're not reinventing the wheel, we're buying pre-existing ones. And so what we're doing there is we're able to you know, adopt an existing Royalty agreement, which is a lot simpler than writing a new stream or transaction. And so from that side, it's 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 sort of jumped over
0: that initial hurdle. So, but how do you know what good looks like, or is it the case? There's so little competition down at this level that you'll take anything.
1: Good in terms of a royalty itself or an agreement. Well, a both, royalty itself. Both. Well, I think that um, a lot of the deals we've done. Um, I, so out of the six royalties we've bought, uh, I would say four of them have come from billion-dollar-plus companies, and so essentially we were buying very non-core assets for them that in one or two cases, they didn't know they owned. And, um, you know, it meant that we could approach them and acquire these royalties in an uncompetitive environment. Um, So we're not going through an investment bank-led process. And when there were opportunities we looked at and it turned into a competitive opportunity, we by and large stepped out of it. Because for a small team with a starting out high cost capital, it's just not worth it for us. So we're going out and we're finding those sort of diamonds in the rough to use that analogy. And then we were transacting on those on really good um, terms for us.
0: Well, Tell tell me what what you think, what you mean by diamonds in the rough. I mean, you could equally look at it that no one else wants. I mean, how how do you work out, again, it comes back to how do you actually work out what good looks like for the company? I get that you're targeting uh, Royalty paying, like producing. That's important because you need some cash coming in unless you need to want to go and borrow it and that's expensive. So how do you determine what good looks like? I mean, Really dig down on that one if you don't mind.
1: It's, it's a mix of, I think one of the most important attributes for us is the operator, because the best thing about a Royalty company is you don't have to operate the asset. But conversely, the other side of the coin is that you are dependent on those operators. And so we have you know, sort of avoided private companies where we won't have much visibility, transparency. And so the operators we've got in Taranga, TSX listed, TSX listed, Premier Gold, Canada listed again, base resources listed in, in UK and Australia, Zijin, but large public companies where there's a lot of visibility, transparency, and so we don't have their operator risk. So that's the key point, number one. Second after that, I think, is is from a technical side. Um, if we're comfortable with the operator, do we like the expiration upside? Do we like the? Um, I suppose if it's an operation, do we like how they're running the the asset? And and that comes down to not just technical side, but also community, in country relations, um, you know, all the usual risks you look at when you see a, a mining operation. Um, and then and then crucially, um, particularly at the beginning, um, you know, really had to be good value. And I think um, if we look at some of the royalties we've bought. Um, you know the first one we bought we were repaid in under two and a half years on a producing royalty tier one on the cost curve. If we look at two of our royalties that were sister royalties owned by listed royalty companies, both cases you know paid a higher price for those sister royalties on an equivalent basis than we did um, and if you look at one of the ones we bought recently again um you know we've sort of been repaid half the acquisition costs um in about two years um so we've got some We've got some really good value buys on good quality assets, and I think what we've always said coming into the market recently is that it will be a blended approach. It will be good quality opportunities where we're paying a fuller price, and um, good value opportunities, which you you know they're great when you get them, but sometimes they come along like buses. You get one or two all at once, and then you don't get any at all.
0: Okay, so that's interesting. Now I'm going to come back to the question I asked you at the beginning because I think you've you've given us a bit more colour, and I think you're going to be able to better answer that question, which is what is the business model? Because you know all royalty companies start small because they haven't got much money to buy you know big royalties with, but they all want to grow. They all uh, you know you you've you've been offloaded. You've bought secondary royalties here from companies here, pre- presumably going up that Growth curve themselves. So, is your plan to do that, or do you think there's a market down here in the small stuff?
1: So, I think that um, I think will one of the one of the key drivers at the beginning of that strategy was that no sort of you know good quality operator of the level we wanted needed two million dollars from an elemental when we started out. And so the only way we could really get access to those, what we saw as good quality opportunities, was going out and finding those diamonds in the rough that met all the criteria. And I think that as we have grown up, as our portfolios got bigger, so our first acquisition was actually $2 million, and we syndicated it with a private equity fund and gave them half the deal for free just to get up and going off the ground. Um, the ones after that was four and a half million, the last one was 12 and a half million. So, we've been able, as we go, to increase the deal size and scale up. And I think what the listing unlocks is, is three things for us on that front. Um, for the first time, we can really use our equity, which we haven't been able to do in the same way when we were private and we hadn't put a timeline on the listing. Um, we'll have more money coming out of this listing than we have raised to date in the history of the company. Um, and you know, for the first time, we also have an acquisition facility that we can use to sit alongside debt, uh, sit us alongside equity and cash. So we can transact on much larger opportunities and we're less weighted towards those as our portfolio grows. So I think that we can start to look now, in answer to your question, at doing streams or royalties directly with the operators themselves, that in the past we weren't. And so that's another really attractive thing, is that I think there's still a huge, Market of secondary royalties, and now we're at the stage where we're getting access to writing royalties for the first time ourselves.
0: Understood, that makes a lot of sense. Um, access to the capital, so when you go public, I mean, what, what sort of quantum are you looking to um, raise during that IPO?
1: So we have, um, we, we've done the roadshow and um, we went out to raise 15 million Canadian, and um, we, we announced that um, we ended up accepting uh, approximately 24 million Canadian. So um, it was. uh, I think we were we were more than two times oversubscribed, and we increased it to a level that we thought gave us enough money to really go out there. At the same time, being protective of dilution to the extent, you know.
0: So, what's that value? What what will that value the company at?
1: So it will just just over sort of fifty million, fifty-four million Canadian, roughly, um, uh, fully diluted.
0: Okay, and you're going after the precious metals market. I know you've got base in there, so there's some mineral sands and so forth, but it's predominantly uh, precious metals. That's Those are the types of royalty companies that really get noticed in North America. And will Is that the strategy?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think you touch on a really key point there, which is the value differential between precious metals and non precious metals royalty companies. And I'm going to quote um, uh, Doug Silver. Um, from Orion and he was at International Royalty Court years ago, which was bought by Royal Gold. And um, he always tells a story that when they they bought the royalty on Voices Bay nickel mine, which was the highest quality asset they had, and he said on a relative basis the valuation went down because it was non-precious metals. And you know, it doesn't always necessarily that in that example make sense. But if it is an established fact and it's established reality, um, a little bit like us do we come to London and try and educate the market, or do we go to Canada where people know what they're talking about, they understand it, the comparators, the peers are all there. I think very much in that sense, it made sense for us to focus on precious metals, where there is an audience, where people understand it, where the valuations, you know, they do get that premium.
0: So when do you offload Kuala?
1: Well, I think that as we, as we grow the portfolio, Kuala is going to be a smaller part of that um, as we go. So, I think that raw gold um, in the past certainly had a sort of 80 20 rule, 80% precious metals. Um, and I think that that's quite common in a lot of the larger royalty companies. You know, so long as you're sticking to that 70, 80% precious metals, you still get that same valuation treatment. And it's a lot of companies have, um, you know, whether it's a royalty on a copper gold asset or byproduct commodities, they do tend to have that mix. So I think that we're comfortable with keeping some other opportunities in there, but keeping the focus precious metals.
0: It's interesting because we had E. B. Tucker on his uh, NED at Metala the other day, and he was they're offloading anything which isn't gold or silver is out because they're they're worried about that rating. But everyone's got their own opinion. Um, can we talk about the structure though, please? Because yes. um, I want to understand how the money's been raised and what's going to happen four months after you have gone public. So, who is involved? Who's raised the money for you?
1: So, Canaccord, we are the lead agent alongside Hayward and Sprott. And we are coming out of this fundraising with about um, 26% of the company still owned by management, 30% owned by institutional investors, um, a bit over that. And then the residual, about 44% owned by private investors. And the top 20 shareholders, own going on for 67% of the company. So it's still pretty tightly held. um, And we will be, um, the vast majority of the shares will be free trading from day one. Um, So there won't won't really be a full-month hold on it because we're going in reverse. So um, I think that we, uh, the kind of, one thing I would point out is the kind of investor we attracted when we were private, who were willing to invest in us with an undefined timeline to a liquidity event or a listing. Um, I think are the kind of investors who are comfortable holding and not, you know, selling as soon as you list a company. So I think that um, we've got a pretty tight shareholder structure there and some very supportive shareholders, both private and institutions, who we have both had in the past and some who now are joining us.
0: Okay. You don't expect your brokers to dump stock in the market as soon as they can then? No. I, don't okay. hope. I hope not either. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. And with regards to um, how you're going to be able to raise money going forward, what type of structures will you be using whenever you need to do deals? You, you mentioned a facility there.
1: So we, um, we, we have an acquisition facility um, for, for, for up to 20 million US that we had um, with Sprock Resource Lending, who we also used for the last royalty acquisition in advance of the listing. And um, I think that complements really nicely our ability to offer vendors equity as well as cash. And I think if you look at some of the recent peers, I think one of the features that's been very apparent, and it's certainly um, it's been there in every conversation we have had with the Royalty owner recently, is that they would like to take some equity as part of that deal because they can see the value uplift it will give and they can see how they can share in some of that. And so I think, it, I think it is most likely to be a, a mixed approach of equity, cash and then debt where appropriate.
0: Okay. And obviously when you're starting out to try and get deals over the table, you've got to look far and wide. Okay. Uh, understood. If I look at the geography of yours, you've got, you've got North America, South America, Africa, Australia, um, where are you going to be focusing uh, your attentions in terms of getting deals moving forward? Because again, you talk about North American understanding, North Americans don't like a lot of risk either. So what are you going to be focused on? I,
1: I, think, we're going to, I think we're going to continue to look at a number of different um, regions, um, North and South America, Africa and, and Australia, maybe Australasia. Um, I think that it's, it's a mix of getting, you know, first of all, in the secondary market, you always have more opportunities in established mining jurisdictions it's just a result of history and how many operations there are. So, we are likely to be biased towards those because there are more Royalties there. I think it's a really good point that I think that for a North American listed Royalty company, having assets in North America, um, some some sort of core assets is is preferable for sure. Um, But I also think that there's a lot of exploration opportunity uh, in emerging jurisdictions. And one of the things with a Royalty company is that you can be more diversified. Than a miner, you know, and you can do it so early on. I always drew the parallel in London when we were here. That I think there were call it 150 listed exploration companies in aim. There were maybe eight with diversified revenue, and there were maybe you know even less of those that ticked all the boxes. And for us as a small royalty company starting out, we already tick a lot of those boxes. And so I think that to some extent, again, it's, it's about being sensible, but to some extent we can afford to have royalties in jurisdictions where we might not want to be a sole company, a sole asset operator. Okay. We can afford to have some eggs in those different baskets and benefit from some of the upside, but not have too much exposure on the downside.
0: Okay, so and what's the profile going to be? You, you, at a necessity, went for you know four out of your six are producing, and another one producing by twenty twenty two. You need the revenue, but going forward, sounds like you've got access to cash. Are you going to maintain that same profile, or are you going to kind of drop down and do a bit more development?
1: That's it's always a question we have internally, and we've had it since the beginning because there are some um, you know there always are some good opportunities at the early stage, and I think that from listing. We will, um, we'd like to keep that weighting towards producing assets, which I think is really important. But I think that we will start to look at more um, certain opportunities in the exploration development stage, where we think that um, there's a really attractive proposition. And I think, it's, uh, I think what investors want to see is, is we're not you know, turning our profile of the company upside down. It's a gradual evolution, step-by-step we are adding some at the development stage, we are adding some at the expiration stage and continuing to add producing Royalties. Um, and as you say, I think it gets easier as you get bigger, because all of a sudden we can start to use some of our cash flow to fund some of those expiration Royalties and you know avoid dilution that we wouldn't have been able to do at the outset.
0: Okay. So where do you find all these deals?
1: Um, it's not the Yellow Pages. Um, it's, it's, it's funny. It's a mix of network, um, hard work. Um, you know, if you if you look at enough projects, and I think over time you, you you sort of see so many. And that's one of the really I think fun things right now is that with the listing, we've had the opportunity to go back and revisit a lot of deals we saw one, two, three years ago that were too big for us then, or just didn't quite fit our portfolio. And we can go back to them now. We've spoken to them. We know who the owners are. We know the assets. And suddenly we've got an ability to transact on it. And some of them fit our portfolio better now than they did. So um, it is a, it's a sort of a mix of a whole number of different routes into finding every opportunity you can. And I think it's uh, sometimes, you know, easy analogy, it's about turning over as many rocks as possible. Um, and then you find some really attractive opportunities in there. And, and some of those are perfectly attractive in and of themselves. But it's about fitting elemental as much as anything else at the stage we're at
0: okay how do you manage the public market component? who's got the experience of doing that
1: yeah so so i uh, I was general manager of an ASX listed company so I, I was essentially day to day running that reporting to the board in Australia um, and then in London um, it, it was uh, as we were coming in to list on aim that company was was listed on um, you know what was there in the ISDX exchange so um, i have done it before, and one of the things we did in advance of listing at the end of last year was we hired Matt Anderson, who's a part-time CFO for us based in Vancouver, um, and, and he's going to be on top of the quarterly filings, reporting that you need to do. And also coming into the listing, um, we had uh, um, uh, Martin Churen, um and, and um, John Robbins both join the board And um, John is part of the discovery group, stable of companies in Canada, knows about capital markets very well. Martin background as as an accountant and and runs a Canadian listed company. Um, And so I think we're, you know, again, this comes back to coming to the market at a point where you have the critical mass to get good quality people involved and to be able to delegate things. Because the last thing we want to do is come to the market and I have to spend all my time doing quarterly filings. And reporting, and all of a sudden, we're not looking for royalties and we're not doing the day job anymore. And so, you know, this really informed when we came to market, which is when we can hit the ground running. We come in, and actually, instead of being distracted by the listing, we've just hired someone, David Baker, who just joined us um, a few months ago, really to focus on the business development side and enable us to look at more of those opportunities um, and keep going. And so, I think that as we go, um, you know I know that now we can we can cover off more ground and more opportunities than we could have done three months ago six months ago and you know again a year before that so we're constantly adding to the team even though it's a small team still and also you know as we get more experience it's easier sometimes when you've looked at a royalty in say Chile before you know the tax structure you know some lawyers you've dealt with there you know what some of the pitfalls are and so when you go into it, you know, straight away, you, you sort of say, okay, well, does this team have this X, Y and Z as an issue? And if it doesn't, then great to start with. So it does get easier as you get more experience in it and you've worked in the same jurisdictions to look at other opportunities now.
0: Okay. And you're going to be the front guy talking to the market, are you?
1: Yes. Hopefully this interview hasn't put paid to that yet.
0: I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, Fred, like, thanks for that. Nice first run through. Um, do stay in touch with us and let us know how you get on. Um, we, you know, we are big fans of the royalty model. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, CruxInvestor.com, and of course our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn.